good morning. As Pastor Dave said, today we're continuing with this series on the letters from Jesus. And today we're doing the letter to the church at Thyatira. Now, I have to be very honest with you that when Pastor Tony said, would you handle this letter on the church to Thyatira, my first reaction was, I don't know anything about Thyatira. And which is really strange because I have been a Christian for a long time. I mean, I have heard hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons. I even went to Sunday school. And I cannot remember one sermon, one Bible lesson about this church in Thyatira. And so there may be some of you out there that know a lot about Thyatira, but I'm guessing you're probably much like me. Like, what is this city called Thyatira? So I did a little bit of research, and I thought that would be a good place for us to start before we really look at the message of this letter. You see, Thyatira was a city that was closely connected to this great city of Pergamum. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about Pergamum and how it was a seat of government for the province of Asia, which was in the northern part of the Roman Empire. And Pergamum was a magnificent city. It had great architecture. In fact, when they were rebuilding Rome, Romans looked to the architecture in Pergamum for inspiration. It was a wealthy city. It was a city of the political elites. And because of its prominence, because of its wealth and its significance in this region, the leaders of this city of Pergamum knew that they were a prize target for an invasion from the east. And so they looked to this city called Thyatira, about 25 to 35 miles southeast, to be a city where they could establish a military outpost. In other words, if there was an invasion, they would have a military force close by. So unlike Pergamum, Thyatira was not architecturally impressive. It wasn't culturally significant. It wasn't a place where the political elites lived. Thyatira, in fact, is barely mentioned in any of the ancient literature. And of the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, Thyatira was considered the least remarkable. But there was one thing that they were noted for in Thyatira, in addition to being this military outpost, is that it became this thriving commercial center. It became a labor city of trades. And one of the most important trades was the making of indigo dyes, which made purple-colored fabric. And in the first century, if you were wealthy, the status symbol was to have a garment made of this indigo-dyed purple fabric. That was the status symbol. So Thyatira was known for its indigo trade, but it was also filled with many other trades. It was a city of artisans, artisans who were organized in what were called trade guilds. And in Thyatira, these trade guilds were so well organized, they wielded so much power over the city and over the trades. If you had a skill, you had to be part of a trade guild. They wielded more power than any of the trades in any of the first century cities. You see, they operated something like a labor union only on steroids. I mean, they were so powerful that they set the contracts, the work quotas. 
They determined that there was when your mandatory meetings were and there were mandatory festivals. So if you were a textile worker, a bronzesmith, a tanner, a dyer, a carpenter, if you wanted to work in a trade in Thyatira, then you belonged to a trade guild. And the trade guilds were powerful. They were so intrusive that they even moved into your personal life. They would govern what god you were to worship. You see, for every trade guild had a patron god. And you were to worship this patron god because they believed by worshiping this god, it would, it would make sure that their trade was successful. And the problem with these patron, these patron gods is that the worship of these gods involved drunken feasts, sexual immorality, temple prostitutes, eating of meat offered to these idols, and in some cases, child sacrifice. So to be working in Thyatira and being part of a trade guild, you were expected not just to observe these temple festivals, but you were expected to participate in them. And if you did not participate in these pagan rituals, then your guild membership was revoked and you lost your economic security and you would be treated as a social outcast. This was the cancel culture of the first century. And it is against this backdrop of pagan worship that Jesus sends this letter to the church in Thyatira. And as we have learned in each one of these letters, Jesus opens a letter with an introduction of who he is. And that introduction always has meaning. And so let's look at how Jesus opens his letter to the Thyatirans. He says, these are the words of the Son of God. This is Revelation 2.18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus declares in the opening of this letter that he is the Son of God. And that is very significant because you see, in Thyatira, not only were you to worship your patron gods of your guild, but you were also to worship the god of the city, the god of the province, which was Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus. And Zeus was worshipped as the god of all the gods. And so because Apollo was the son of Zeus, he was worshiped as the son of God. And so when he opens up this letter and he says, I am the son of God, he was declaring his identity, his deity, his sovereignty, and his authority as the one true God. And it's with this authority in verse 19, that Jesus begins to commend this church in Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith. I know your service and I know your perseverance and that you are doing more than you did at first. That's a remarkable commendation, right? I mean, right now it looks like this church in Thyatira, it is a stellar church. I mean, here at CCC, if Jesus sent us a letter and in that letter, Pastor Tony got up and said 
This is what Jesus says, CCC, I know your, your love for the Lord, I know your faith, I know your works, I know your service, I know your perseverance, and church, you are doing more now than you did at first. You are, you are spiritually growing and maturing. I mean, wouldn't we be thrilled with that commendation? And I'm sure when that pastor was reading the letter to that congregation in Thyatira, they are feeling pretty good. But then Jesus gives them a nevertheless. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. It's not the Lord's prophet. What is it? She calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. The problem in the church in Thyatira centers around this woman whom Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Now, most scholars agree that is probably not her real name. But Jesus uses this name Jezebel because he's pointing us back to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings, where we read an account of another woman, a notorious woman named Queen Jezebel. And Queen Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married the seventh king of Israel, King Ahab. And King Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And he arranges for a marriage with this Jezebel, this Phoenician princess. And part of the marriage agreement is that he would build this temple in Samaria, a temple to her god named Baal. And to worship Baal involved acts of sexual immorality. It involved temple prostitutes. It involved child sacrifice. And she was so passionate about spreading the worship of Baal throughout the nation of Israel that she even set out a decree to kill the Lord's priest and many were, many were murdered and many were sent into hiding. You see, this was a woman who was not going to let anyone or anything get in her way of leading the nation of Israel into a total worship of Baal with all of its detestable pagan practices. And she did it from a position of authority as queen. Now in Pergamum, the problem was there were those in the church who were being influenced by their culture to embrace pagan worship. This idolatrous teaching had infiltrated the church. But the problem in, in the church of Thyatira was much more severe. You see, in Thyatira, idolatry, the worship of patron gods and all of the detestable practices was being taught as an acceptable doctrine in the church. And a great compromise had been made and apparently the church leaders were allowing this woman who called herself a prophet to teach from this position of authority that participating in this worship of these pagan gods was an acceptable doctrine. Now, please don't misunderstand or misinterpret what the Lord is saying in this letter. He is not saying that the Lord does not want a woman to hold any position of authority in the church or to teach in the church. Jesus' rebuke here was because she, this woman called Jezebel, abused that position of authority. She abused that honor of teaching false doctrine and leading people astray. 
leading them away from the revelation of who Jesus is. And the church leaders had not corrected her. And so Jesus came in and stepped in to correct. And so we read in verse 21 and 23, the Lord said, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children, meaning her followers, dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. I don't know about you, but when I read scriptures like that, they make me uncomfortable. I don't like reading harsh scriptures like that. When he says there's going to be a bed of suffering, that those who follow her will suffer intensely, and then he speaks of death. Sometimes when we read scriptures like that, we say, where is my merciful, loving, forgiving Jesus? But I think we find it in verse 21 when we look very closely at how he begins that verse. He said, what, I gave her time to repent, but what, she is what, unwilling. In other translations, it says, she will not repent. She refuses You see, our God is loving, our God is compassionate, and our God is merciful. But understand, our God is holy. Our God is holy and our God is just, and he cannot ignore sin. He cannot condone sin. He cannot overlook sin. You see, in Romans 6, we read, For the wages of sin is death. It is sin that brings the consequence, the payment, the penalty of death. So it is clear that this woman who has been teaching this false doctrine, she has been given time and she has been given opportunity. She's been made aware of her sin and God has mercifully given her this time and opportunity to be spared of the consequences of her sin. But she was defiant and her heart was hard, and she would not change. And so she and those who followed her, who refused to repent, they would suffer the consequences that sin brings. And the tragedy is, is that if she had only repented, if she had only repented, the Lord would have reached out with mercy and forgiveness because God responds to a repentant heart. Because the heart of God is to forgive. The heart of our God is to be merciful. If only they had repented. You know, since the beginning of January and throughout the time of fasting and prayer, the Lord has been pointing us over and over again to the importance of repentance. We see it here in the book of Revelation. We see it in these letters that Jesus sends to the churches But, you know, we also see it in the Old Testament. We particularly see it when we look at the actions of two kings, the first and second king of Israel. You see, the first king, King Saul, in his first year of reign, God told him to go into battle, and he was victorious. But with success, Saul's attitude began to change. He developed, and he was victorious. 
But with success, Saul's attitude began to change. He developed this habit of bending rules and obeying God just halfway. He had this habit of wanting the glory for himself, that he was seeking the the approval of people rather than the approval of God. And this attitude became evident when God instructed him to lead his army to execute God's judgment against the Amalekites. And God's instructions were very clear. He said, I want you to go into battle against the Amalekites. I want you to do battle. I want you to destroy the Amalekites and all of their livestock. So Saul and his army went in, and they were victorious. But Saul wasn't completely obedient. You see, Saul kept the king alive and the best of the livestock. They only destroyed what was worthless or poor quality. And so the Lord sends the prophet Samuel to confront King Saul. And here comes the prophet Samuel. And when the king sees the prophet approaching, he said, Samuel, look, I have done what the Lord has commanded me to do. And Samuel said, really? Then why do I hear some sheep bleeding and I hear the the cattle lowing? And then he said, why have God? First of all, notice he shifts blame, right? It's the army. And then he he justified his greed with the intention that they would just sacrifice these animals to God. First of all, notice he shifts blame, right? It's the army. And then he, he justified his greed with the intention that they would just sacrifice these animals to God. And remember, he says what? To your God. Well, Samuel's response to that was very stern. Verse 19. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what is evil in the Lord's sight? And incredibly, Saul responds with yet another denial that he had really done anything wrong. He was on repentant. And then Samuel relayed this judgment, verse 23. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Finally, he admits his disobedience, yet incredulously, even in his admission, he shifts blame for listen to the next verse. He says, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. He confessed, but he didn't repent. He wasn't open to the correction of the Lord. He had an unrepentant heart. And because he had an unrepentant heart, God rejected Saul as his king. And in his place, he anointed another man named David to be king. Now David, he loved the Lord and desired to please him. And God gave him victory over his enemies, expanded his kingdom, but we know David was not perfect, right? And there was a time in David's life when his kingdom was secure, his borders were secure, his enemies are are having victory when David got complacent. And we read in verse 11, or chapter 11 in Samuel, 2 Samuel, it says, One late afternoon, 
David got up from taking his nap and was strolling on the roof of the palace. And from his vantage point on the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was stunningly beautiful. And that woman was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's great army commanders. And David sent for her. And so while her husband is fighting on the battlefield for David, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then things got complicated, as what happens with sin, right? Bathsheba sent word that she's pregnant, and so David puts together this elaborate plan to cover up the sin of adultery, but it falls apart. You see, David was frantically trying to find a way to hide his sin, but sin is never hidden from God. And his plan was to deceive people into believing that Bathsheba was pregnant by her husband instead of by David. And to do that, he had to send, he had to send Bathsheba's husband to the battlefront where he would face certain death. David was trying to frantically hide his sin, but no sin is hidden from God. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David. And this is what we read. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites, and you have stolen his wife. Okay, now how does David respond? Is he going to respond like King Saul with justifications, excuses, shifting blame? You know, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out on that balcony where I could see her. Look at how he responds. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And in Psalm 51, we read his prayer of repentance about this moment in his life. With a broken and contrite heart, he cries out to the Lord in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast a right spirit within me, and do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, not only does David confess his sin, but he declares his desire to turn back to God with a heart of steadfast love and devotion. And because of David's genuine repentance, God reached out with mercy and forgiveness. Now, there were consequences for his sin, but God did not abandon him in those consequences. And mercifully, and mercifully, he did not reject David as his king. Now, I want you to think about something for a moment. David commits, what, murder and adultery. King Saul spares the king of the Amalekites and doesn't kill all of the livestock. Now, from the human perspective, it seems like David should have had the much harsher judgment, right? Yet God is merciful to David. I mean, and if, if God was merciful to David for sins of murder and adultery, then certainly God should have been merciful to King Saul. And if God rejected, didn't reject David as king, then he shouldn't have rejected King Saul. I mean, that is the way that it seems 
fair to us. But you see, God doesn't look at just our actions. He looks at our heart. And when he looked at Saul, he saw a heart of rebellion that was filled with justifications and excuses and shifting of blame. He saw a heart of a man that was seeking the approval of people instead of pleasing God. A man that was seeking glory to himself instead of glorifying God. But when he saw David, he saw a heart of repentance, genuine repentance. And God reached out with mercy and forgiveness. Yet as I reflected on this moment in David's life, I wondered. On that day when David saw Bathsheba and then committed that act of adultery which led to murder, what if on that day when David got up from that nap, his heart had been a heart that was in prayer? If he had prayed this prayer that he had penned in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now it is true that when David was confronted with his sin, he responded with genuine repentance. But how much pain and sorrow would have been avoided in his life and the lives of those his sin touched, if this had been his daily prayer. If this had been his prayer, search me, O Lord. Is there any wicked way in me? You know, it's interesting, this phrase, wicked way, the word wicked comes from the Hebrew word atseb, O-T-S-E-B, atseb. And it does mean wicked, but you know, it also means pain and sorrow. That is why in other translations you'll read, search me, O Lord, and see if there's any grievous way in me. Search me, O Lord, see if there's any hurtful way in me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Now we know that when we sin, that our sin can bring pain and sorrow, not only into our lives and the lives of others, just like it did to David. But I think what sometimes we fail to keep before us, to be cognizant of, is that our sin grieves God. Our sin creates sorrow for our God. You see, because God hates sin, because he is holy, sin is the very antithesis of his character, and sin grieves God. It pains him because Sin causes us to be separated from him. The ones that he so loved, he sent his son to suffer, to absorb the pain of our sin on that cross. Having a truly repentant heart indeed means that when the Lord shows us those sins that we have actually committed, that we confess them, and we turn away from that sin. We say, Lord, create in me a right heart. And we do it without shifting blame or excuses. But this morning, I believe that there is another aspect to having a repentant heart. And that is a heart that is open continually to the examination 
of the Lord to say, Lord, is there any atzeb way in me? Is there any thought? Is there any desire that I am nurturing, that I am embracing that could lead to that act of sin? That before it brings sorrow and pain into my lives and the lives of others, Lord, search my heart. Examine my heart. Is there any thought? Is there any desire that grieves you, that is offensive to you? So this morning, I'm going to invite you to join me in asking the Lord to examine our hearts. You see, because when Jesus concluded his rebuke to Jezebel, this is what he says then all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Mind and heart, thoughts and desires. And I will give each of you according to his works. This is why we read in Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, we have to guard our heart. And we can guard our hearts by asking the Lord to examine our heart to see if there's any atzeb way in me. Is there any thought? Is there any desire that grieves our Lord? And so, as I said, I'm going to invite you to join me in praying a prayer of repentance, asking the Lord to examine our hearts. It's a prayer that is taken from the verses that are found in Psalm 51 and Psalm 39. Can we, with full surrender, with all sincerity, Are we willing to really pray this prayer to get to the heart, the heart of all of our actions? See, we don't commit any actual sin, lying, cheating, whatever it is, unless first the problem is with the heart and the mind, the thoughts. And Jesus says, listen, I'm searching. I search your hearts. When the Lord sees Joy Gruitz, he doesn't see this body. He sees my heart. He sees your heart. And so we're going to pray this prayer together, and we're not going to pray it with timidity. We're going to pray it with boldness and with sincerity. And you're going to have to pray with your eyes open. So we're going to pray it together. Whether you're at home or whether you're in the sanctuary, let's really open up our hearts and our minds to that convicting Not condemning, but the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And let him change us, perfect us. You see, part of this perfecting process has to be this work of repentance, genuine repentance in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our desires. Let's pray together. Are you ready? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. 
and see if there be any grievous, offensive, hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, my sins. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's now take, as our worship team continues to just quietly play some music in the background, let's just now close our eyes and let's take some moments to respond to this prayer, to let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind a thought that you're embracing, a desire that you've been nurturing, and the Holy Spirit saying, that's an atzeb way. That's a grievous way. It's going to lead to pain and sorrow. Let the Lord truly work on your heart. He sees it. So today, respond as we take these few moments. And I would encourage you, let this be a daily prayer.